I told you last night that the Buddhist teaching is very often many, many discourses concerned with cause and effect. And of course cause and effect is also karma. So our life is actually governed by cause and effect. And to learn how cause and effect operates in every moment can be helpful to us. How the Buddha explained it in an overall picture is also very important so that we can see something a little more universal about ourselves rather than having this very small and limited standpoint about me the one that's always in the middle it's very helpful to be able to have a more expanded view now I mentioned already that in the chain or in the circle of cause and effect, we usually start explaining that circle with the beginning, the beginningless beginning of ignorance, which gives us a starting point, and the Buddha refused to go any further back. One of the four questions that he would not answer, where does ignorance come from? He said it wouldn't help us to become enlightened just to look at it now and let go of it. Now ignorance leads us to this me idea which makes karma. I explained that last night already. And the karma making is our constant relationship with everything that goes on all day long. So whenever you have a thought of something you don't like, of something you can't do, of something that isn't just so, well look at it. How did it come about? Has somebody done it to you, for you? against you. This is one of the most important aspects of realizing and eventually becoming master of one's own destiny. Nobody is doing a thing to us. We're doing it all to ourselves. And every thought that may be concerned with rejection and resistance needs to be examined in that light because if it is negative it's making negative karma and how do you know that we're making negative karma in the case of a negative thought unhappiness follows immediately very simple it couldn't be simpler 
So this is one way of having a look at what we're doing to ourselves. And it's so simple to see cause and effect. Now the way the Buddha described the universal, the pen deriving, is that from our karma making, we have the rebirth consciousness. Now I'm not going to talk about rebirth after we're dead. That's a nice theoretical discussion. And this meditation course is strictly for practical doing. It has nothing in it that's for theoretical discussions. That can be done at other times and under other conditions. There's lots of that possible, but not in this course. Rebirth consciousness arises every morning when we wake up. It actually arises every moment that we are awake and aware. But that is difficult to notice. That takes a great deal of mindfulness to know that our consciousness arises and ceases constantly, all the time. So we're reborn all the time. But maybe you can look at it in this way. Maybe there is unhappiness in the consciousness for one moment, and then you remember that you're only hurting yourself, and a new consciousness arises which is quite happy. You're reborn with a happy consciousness a moment later. The rebirth of our consciousness takes place constantly. But I will use it now, at this moment, for explaining it every morning. Because that may help you to have the urgency of practice without which nothing happens. You got as far as here, which already took some energy and effort to get here. Not that easy. I have to have certain conditions happen to make it here. And now that you're here, the urgency for practice has to arise. And if that doesn't arise, then the trip may have been just to see a nice forest which is all right, except that it's raining and not very useful. In fact, the rain is useful. It's not so pleasant to go for walks. One's absolutely got to do something about meditation. So there's even an outer urgency. But even that is not enough. There has to be inner urgency. And without the inner urgency, it's just not going to come together. So what you can look at is this. Everybody's heard about rebirth, life after life, and all that sort of thing. And past lives, 
and people are vitally interested in who they were last time around and the time before. There are innumerable Persian dancers around and uh, very heroic um, field marshals and explorers that's all the things we've been in the past it's totally immaterial it's all gone whether we actually wear that or not what does it matter the only thing that matters is our rebirth this morning this is the moment we've got the past is completely gone the future is the yet to come the only thing we have for our life is this moment now if you've been conscientiously labeling you must have noticed that it's either past or future it's never anything else because if it is present it's breathing or sitting what else so if you have labeled properly you've seen it the past and the future well who can live in the past and who can live in the future nobody these are concepts conjectures ideas humanity has this very absurd and wonderful habit to live in concepts to try to think life out it isn't possible we've got to live life and the more we think life out the less we'll be able to deal with the actual living of it the more we get excited and upset when things don't go the way we want them to go nobody has ever had that prerogative to have everything go the way they want it to go we might as well start living life and living life is only this moment because when the future actually arrives it's always called the present when tomorrow actually comes it's today so this is the day this is the only day for practice that we're going to practice tomorrow is a hope and a prayer and a probability but that's all it is the reality lies in this moment that's all nothing else and the more you can imbue your consciousness with that the easier it will be to stay on the breath because that's now we're breathing now all the thoughts are hopefully ide- ideation hoping and planning or remembering the more we can recognize the fact that this morning's rebirth is the one we can be sure of because we're here and all others we cannot be sure of maybe that will induce some urgency 
the urgency of practice comes with the fact that we can remember so many times when our own reactions were not making us happy. Basically, what every human being wants is happiness. Perfectly valid. So we are in the same boat. But we don't go about it the right way. That's why it's not working. It never works when we think of past and future. It can only work when we are in the moment. Now, for the meditation, that's one thing. But outside of meditation, that's another thing. Our mind doesn't stop doing silly things when we get up and walk outside. On the contrary, it has even more chances. So how do we stay in the moment outside of meditation? I'll give you one clue already. But I will now give you one which is the most important one because it is that which anyone can do at any time and which always brings us back to our center. It's called mindfulness of the body, attention to our movement, attention to our actions, physical, physical actions, physical movement. I divided into these two because movements are something that we don't even recognize that they are induced by intention. We're not mindful enough for that. But action we do recognize that it's induced by intention. If we start eating, we probably know that we had the intention to eat. But when we're moving about, walking from here to there, opening a door, we don't notice the intention, we're just moving. The more we can keep our mind occupied with what is actually happening in every moment, the easier it will be to meditate, the easier it will be to come to a calm mind, the easier it will be to eventually open the door to our own inner life where all that what we've been searching for outside is to be found. It's all available, waiting for us. All we need to do is open the door. But we've got to stop thinking. So the more we help ourselves by being in the moment, outside of meditation, the easier it will be to be in the moment during meditation. Walking while walking. Opening a door while opening a door. Putting on shoes while putting on shoes. Opening the umbrella while opening the umbrella. Check it out and see where the mind is when you open the umbrella. Is it on dreadful weather? So wet. I don't like it when it rains so much. Or, isn't it nice? It's not so hot. 
actually better than last year was much hotter then well last year actually my meditation went better what happened oh yes I had that row in the meantime that's all going on while opening an umbrella totally unnecessary and completely detrimental to meditation washing dishes while washing dishes and not thinking why did I draw this one again where I don't like washing dishes I always seem to wind up with washing dishes and they should really make better facilities for washing dishes or why do they use so many dishes or whatever it is all going on while washing dishes but one can instead wash dishes watch the movement of the hand watch the movement of the body as it washes dishes as it opens an umbrella doesn't that sound simple to open an umbrella while opening an umbrella please try it it's extremely revealing in fact all these things are extremely revealing once you've done it and once you've seen what happens I'm sure you'll find it very amusing it is amusing it's extremely amusing the way we usually live the only thing that isn't amusing is that we're not happy that way that isn't amusing at all the unfortunate part of it is that we're always thinking somebody else is making us unhappy that is no longer amusing then but what we do is like children the Buddha compared us with children so the mindfulness of every movement is the ideal obviously we're not going to be ideal that's quite alright not to be ideal is perfectly alright but at least to try to catch oneself over and over again when the mindfulness of the action has been lost and the mind is off on a tangent discussing the things that are happening in the world with oneself one's likes and dislikes one's worries, one's fears and coming back and recognizing aha, lost my mindfulness back to being mindful that's being in the moment that's knowing that the present moment is the only one the Buddha said about mindfulness the one way for the purification of beings for the elimination of pain, grief and lamentation for the utter destruction of Dukkha for entering the noble path for realizing Nibbana is mindfulness the one way Ekayana not Mahayana not Hinayana Ekayana one way that one way of mindfulness he said is the one way for the purification of beings now why does it purify us and the word purification is going to appear many a time during the course because in order to open that door to enter into the in our, into our inner life 
where we find happiness and joy, we've got to cart away the debris that's covering the door. Most people don't even know they've got one. There may be a subconscious inkling that there must be something somewhere and that one can find it, but usually it is connected with finding something outside of oneself. So the debris has to be removed. And we can do that in a meditation course through the purification of mind and heart. So you will hear more about that. Now mindfulness is a factor of purification because it makes it impossible at the time of being mindful to be negative. Luckily we can only do one thing at a time, negative or grasping which means, very simply put, liking or disliking, wanting to get or wanting to get rid of. The more we want to get, the more we want to get rid of, the more debris there is in front of the door, because that debris makes it impossible to stay nicely put on the breast. There's always something that we want to get rid of or something we want to get. So purification through mindfulness is our great chance and it fits in and it belongs together with recognizing our reverse consciousness, not in 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now or last time, last life or 10 lives before or 50 lives from now, nothing like that, that theory and conjecture and doesn't help us to meditate. But what helps us to meditate is to know that we are actually the one that is creating that reverse consciousness by the karma we have made the moment before. If we are totally distracted, the next moment is not going to be concentrated. If we are chattering in the mind, the next moment is not going to be one where we can meditate. We're making karma every moment and we're reaping the benefit every moment. Obviously there are underlying tendencies which we have brought with us and there are habits which we have established in this lifetime. The stronger they are and the more they are imbued with viewpoints and the more of wanting there is in them, the more difficult it is to meditate. Maybe we're lucky, maybe we haven't got such strong viewpoints, maybe we haven't got so many opinions. That would be nice, we can all meditate better. But the thing to do at this point is to recognize that we only have this one day, right now, this is the one, that we've brought with us a whole lot of abilities, of skills, but also a whole lot of dislikes and wants. And the abilities and skills that we have need to come to the fore. They need to be in, in charge of what we're doing here. Mindfulness of bodily movement and mindfulness of bodily action is our greatest companion outside of meditation.
to make the meditation happen. If we can make that our companion, then we will also have a wonderful companion in daily life. Many of the thoughts we have are projections over and over again. We think another person thinks that about us. That other person may not have said a word, particularly when there's noble silence, or projections. We think everybody else is sitting nicely, only I get knee pained. All projections. Don't use the mind like that. Let it be with what is really happening, this moment. Now, if you look at rebirth happening every morning and recognizing the fact that this is the only life we all have from morning to evening, that will also arouse the feeling of, I'm going to have to do it now. Not next week, not when the rain stops, not when I don't feel so sleepy, not when I'm not hungry or so full. Now. This is the life I have today. This one I've got. Everything else I don't know about. And recognizing this rebirth today also means that we can see in the morning there's energy. The day is young. We're younger than this evening. And as the day progresses, everything gets older. We get older and the day gets older. And in the evening, we're very tired and we die a small death. We don't know what happens to us until we wake up next morning. And what do we bring along as our karma, as our rebirth consciousness? What do we bring along? Everything we've done today. Obviously, we also bring along what we've done yesterday and the day before. But the strongest thing we bring along is what we've done the exact day before. That's still in the mind. That's really coming out. So if you're now thinking, while you're hopefully meditating, thinking of things, they're probably connected with what you did before you came here. Wait another day and they'll be connected with the things you've been doing here. Unfortunately, the mind is always looking for something. But you can see that we have this whole lifetime in one day. Make it yours. Live it. Live it consciously. To live one's life consciously means to be mindful. The word mindfulness is overused in Buddhism. It's used over and over again. Why? Because the Buddha was so adamant about its importance. And he used it in many ways. But we only always use that one translation. But it means living consciously, being here now. All these words are familiar to us. It's the same as being mindful, actually knowing what we're doing. Now yesterday, I already mentioned to you the benefit of the labeling. Well, that's another aspect of mindfulness. It's the being attentive to the body movement is what is called the first foundation of mindfulness. It's number one. It's number one because it opens the door. 
But it's not only that. The Buddha said, who is not mindful of the body cannot enter into the deathless, which means into freedom. So mindfulness of the body he actually put at the apex of our practice of mindfulness. The fourth one, the last one of the four, is the mindfulness of the content of our mind, and that's the labeling. That's where the labeling comes in. So if you are labeling your distracting thoughts, and you should, if they are of any solidity, if they are of any impact on you. In other words, if they take you away from from the meditation subject, you need to label them. That you continue outside also. Whenever the mind slips off being attentive to body movement and action, look at the content of mind. Use it as the alternative. If the content of mind is particularly disturbing, if you have what is commonly called a problem right at this time, and it keeps on recurring in the mind, because it's a a strong one and an important one. Label. Keep on labeling. Keep looking at it. Now, if that particular thing, the one thing, the same thing, keeps on arising in the meditation, again and again and again, not just thoughts all over the place, but the one thing keeps arising, then use it for insight. Inquire into the cause for it arising again and again. And the answer you get is the next question. Keep on questioning. I'll give you the bottom line right now. But unless you find the bottom line yourself, it doesn't help you. The reason I'll give you the bottom line for this inquiry is that you don't stop midways and think you found the answer. Maybe you found the answer, well, it must be my partner's fault. That's it. I found it. That's the answer. Or it must be the teacher's fault. Or my parents. That's it. My parents. Now I found it. So I'm going to give you the answer, the bottom line answer, so that you don't stop somewhere in the middle. But at the same time, I'd like you to remember that unless you come to that bottom line yourself, it's not going to help you. And if you get stuck somewhere in the middle, just know that you got stuck there, that's all. The bottom line answer is ego. That's all it is. There is no other answer. But please don't misunderstand that. That's no blame. The formula is recognition, no blame, change. Self-blame is another negativity. There is nothing and no one to blame. Things are as they are. Human beings are as they are. But those that want to meditate, obviously also, have that inner urge to change. And if they didn't have it in the beginning, they'll certainly have it at the end of the course. That's what it's all about, meditation. Recognition, no blame, change. Now, this inquiry into the problem is only valid 
if it is one particular thing that keeps on recurring and keeps the mind off the meditation. If a lot of things occur, it's just the mind being um, playful, wanting its own way, not listening to anything, not having enough training yet to stand still. That's all it is. And we don't have to inquire into the cause of it. But if it's one thing, yes. So the mindfulness on the mental content, the content of your thinking, is a very good alternative to the mindfulness on the movement of the body. But take the movements and actions of the body as your priority. We have to have so many movements, especially in this place here, so many things one has to do with the body. There's no lack that what we can become aware of. Going to the toilet, and also a very important one, eating. Usually, food is often considered a social occasion. And it is that also in all religions. There's none exempt. But here, we don't make it a social occasion. We make it a mindfulness practice because we're silent. So don't make it an occasion for like and dislike. That's easy enough to do. We can do that any time. We can do that at any restaurant. That's not what we're here for. We want to make it a mindfulness occasion. Having the bowl in your hand. You can feel it. Touch. There's your bowl. Now, getting the spoon and filling it. That's action. Then, taking the spoon, putting food on it. All action. Lifting it putting it in the mouth, chewing it, tasting it, swallowing it, and not allowing the mind to do anything other than knowing it. And you know what you will find if you actually do it? It's so peaceful. It's so pleasant. Why don't I always do that? And then you try it again. You're not only getting peaceful while you're doing it, but you're helping your own meditation. The actual presence of mind. Presence of mind. How often does one need that in daily life and hasn't got it? That's mindfulness. Presence of mind. This is, there's only one way to practice it. And that's particularly easy, of course, in a situation such as this. This is built around that. So if we can do as much as possible on this particular aspect of the practice, the mindfulness of the body, and enlarge it into the mindfulness of mental content, when that becomes too strong to negate. It's quite all right. Sometimes the thoughts are just following each other in such swift succession that mindfulness of the body goes astray. Fine. Use mindfulness on the content of mind. Know what you're thinking. Label it. That too becomes a very interesting practice because anyone who's ever done it knows 
most of those thoughts are totally unnecessary and are only making oneself anxious or sometimes unhappy. It's not only helpful for meditation, it's interesting because we're getting to know the one person whom we should know best and that's us, ourselves. That's the one we should know. And when we get to know that one person, really get to know that one person, you know what happens? We know everybody else. We're all alike. Although we all look a little different, it's an optical illusion. We're all totally alike. So once we get to know this one, and really know that one, and really can see the difficulties, and can see also the beauty, and can see how the one sometimes overrides the other, then we know everything about everyone else. And no longer do we feel separate, or threatened, or isolated, or disliked, nothing of the sort. We're all together in the same boat. This is a very important aspect of practice. And I'll tell you another thing the Buddha said about it, which is very interesting. And uh, they are his own words, which we have in the Pali Canon. He said, if one were to practice mindfulness for seven years, one would definitely become enlightened. And then he said, nay, even for six years, five years, four years, three years, two years, one year, one would definitely find complete freedom. And then he said, nay, even for eleven months, ten months, nine months, eight months, seven months, six months, five months, four months, three months, two months, one month. And then he said, no, even for seven days. Now we're going to be here 14 days. So what better chance could one have? So only have to do it every second day. <laughs> but I must put a warning in there. He meant complete mindfulness. Not just practicing, but perfection of it. We don't have to aim for perfection. We do the best we can. And this is another very important aspect of contentment with oneself. Being aware of the fact that one has tried one's very best. And not making excuses, but looking at what one has done, saying that was the best I could do at that moment. Maybe this new moment will enable me to do a little better. Maybe I can be a little more mindful the next moment. Recognition, no blame, change. As long as we have any kind of discontent about ourselves, we will have exactly the same amount of discontent about everybody else. And what good, that, good does that do to our own happiness? Nothing. It just makes us discontented, that's all. So if we can recognize the things we do and we need to do, we have our work cut out for us. 
on that cause and effect depend the rising picture for which I have now mentioned the first three steps ignorance the old woman that's trying to find her way through a forest being blind and then the karma making where the potter makes good and a broken pot the karma making which brings us to a rebirth consciousness which is shown as a monkey hopping from tree to tree our consciousness which is reborn every moment goes from here to there the Buddha was doing nothing other than explaining how we are and also how we could become and this becoming is within us now it's right there it's in existence if it wasn't in existence we couldn't ever manage we've got it within we just need to let go now this word letting go is the operative word for the spiritual path and for a meditation course that is the operative word please try to bring it up over and over again in your own consciousness letting go of what well we've already talked about that letting go of thinking instead being right here now experiencing living it consciously living not thinking about but consciously living but letting go is the difference between the worldly life and the spiritual life in the world one is supposed to get get more get this and that and if one hasn't got it one should make tracks to get it whether it's material goods whether it's people whether it's experiences whether it's knowledge we're supposed to get something we're supposed to get somewhere where is anybody going to get to we're all going to wind up in exactly the same place it's just a matter of time and everyone is going to have I hope a very nice funeral there's nowhere to get to we're already there if we could just see it and this is the difference between the worldly life where we're supposed to get somewhere or become somebody and the spiritual life where we let go we let go of all those preconceived notions and ideas we let go of all those viewpoints and all those hopes and all those ideas and get to inside where we really are and inside of us we are exactly that what we want to become so we have to let go we have to let go of all these views and ideas we have to let go of the thinking we have to let go of what we think meditation is supposed to be we have to let go of the support system that we have built around ourselves and this support system supports our illusion that we are somebody obviously we all have names and we all have skills 
but the idea that we are somebody is what's in the way between now and the good meditation because the only support system we have for being somebody is thinking the minute we let go we don't have that support system and therefore letting go is our only chance of really meditating and if we do let go for a moment and are actually there with the meditation you can notice in yourself how you grab at the thought again bring it back so there's somebody there again let go let it all go it's much nicer without all that in mindfulness we also have to let go of all the thoughts that we have usually and just be there and when we do that we have a feeling of confidence that we can do it this feeling helps us also in the meditation so contentment and confidence work hand in hand help us in meditation if we recognize the fact that we are here now and can be consciously aware of what we are actually doing our mindfulness will be greatly helped before we disperse for lunch if you have any questions this is the time to ask them i repeat once more the steps of the pin the rising which we have already discussed the first one was ignorance we're ignoring the four noble truths particularly the third one the third one which is freedom or liberation and because we are ignoring that we are making a good and bad karma karma we are on in the, living in the illusion that we're doing something so good and bad karma is being made now i have just explained that to some extent and because of that there is rebirth consciousness because of the karma that we're making which is completely bound up with the craving to be here we don't want to give up we want to be and we want to be here because of that we have the rebirth consciousness which we have talked about as happening each morning and as we wake up each morning there we are again and want to be here and the next step that comes after that is because of rebirth consciousness mind and body arise now you know from your own experience that when you wake up you know again this is me my mind my body that's it you don't have to think of anything in the future any lives that are to come it happens every morning just watch it tomorrow morning be much better than 
being unhappy that the gong went already. Much more fruitful to think, aha, here I am again, mind and body have arisen. And with that arising of mind and body, of course, we also have that wish that this mind and body, which we call me, should be happy and should everything have everything at once. The first thing that we can learn and need to learn from this mind and body arising is the fact that there are two. And it doesn't matter what the New Age ideas about that are. There are two. There is mind and there is body. They're interdependent, of course. And very often the mind actually does depend on the body as it really shouldn't. But there's two. If your mind hadn't said, I'm going to go to this meditation course, your body wouldn't be sitting here. The body breathes and the mind observes that, or tries to, let's put it that way, tries to observe that. You can't have the mind breathe and the body observing it. Each one has its own function. And it is the first step into insight. And you've got any doubts about this statement, it would be well to investigate it. This is the very first step of either division into 12 or 16 steps into insight. That's how it starts, knowing that there are two, mind and body. And then comes the understanding of who's in charge. And that you can find out for yourself very easily. All you have to do is stand still for a moment and then think, now I'm going to go. Who made you go? Body or mind? It is a truism again. And it's so simple that one wonders why the Buddha went to the trouble to explain this and says that it's the first step into insight. But if you examine yourself for a moment, unless you have practiced this for some time, you've never thought of it. Not only that there are two, but that the mind's in charge. That the mind is, so to say, the boss, and the body is the employee. And if you examine that for a moment, you will find, without a doubt, that we are constantly concerned with the employee and pay very little attention to the boss. And if that should happen in any normal business, it would go broke within the year. That's why our assets are so limited. The boss has to be in order, first of all. 
we can always get the employees to do something sensible if he makes sensible demands. Now obviously in any well-run business, the employees are being looked after. I would be stupid if that was not so. But who's looking after them? So the first order of the day is that the one who's in charge needs attention. Needs to be the one that is at ease, that has clarity of judgment, that knows how to act and react, that is in command. When the mind is not in command, that's the time when we get unhappy, worried, fearful, envious, jealous, upset, anxious, drowsy, restless, and all the rest of it. A boss that's not in command isn't going to run a very good, good business, is he? In fact, it's going to be bankrupt. That's where all the bankruptcy comes from. In people. You don't have to run a business. Running mind and body is enough of a business. We're busy with it from morning to night, only we never have really looked into it to see where we have to put most of the attention. Now if you have a moment to look at what we do for the body, we certainly wash it every day, maybe twice, because we're concerned with its cleanliness and we're concerned with the looks of it. So, what do we wash? One sixteenth of an inch of skin. We think skin is very important. It's got to be the right color, and obviously it shouldn't be dirty. It should also not be wrinkled, and shouldn't have any blemishes. And re in reality, skin is nothing but the gift wrapping. It's wrapped around us. If we didn't have it, we'd look a bit funny. That's all. But that's what we wash day after day after day. Every single day. With great attention. Now this is not to mean we shouldn't do that. Of course we should. And then we feed the body, preferably with either health food or good food. We would never dream of giving anything that's either dirty or poisoned. We'd be fools if we did. And then we give it a good rest. We have a nice bed where it can rest the whole night. But strangely enough, even though it may have an excellent mattress and be dead tired, it still moves around. 
it can't lie still. Why is that? Because it can never be comfortable in the same position for any length of time, even asleep. The mind registers the discomfort and pushes it around, so that we never wake up in the same position that we put ourselves to bed. Some people have less rummaging around than others. Some lose all their bedclothes, everything is on the ground. So we have cleanliness, we have good nourishment, and we have rest. And on top of all that, if we have any sense at all, we also have some exercise. At least we have some walking. If we didn't have any exercise, then we know very well that the body would have great difficulty. Now, do we do all that for the mind? Do we wash it? Do we give it the best possible food? And do we give it a daily rest? Or do we just take potluck? Just let it all happen the way it does. Let it think what it wants. Take in whatever happens. Any kind of conversation, any kind of thought, any kind of produce from the media. And as far as rest is concerned, the mind thinks all day from morning to night and dreams from night to morning. And then we are surprised while we have such a dickens of a time to be happy. How could anything that isn't being looked after function well? If you have any kind of electrical appliance or tool that has any value at all, will you plug it in and let it run 24 hours a day, day after day? If you do, it will burn out and you have to get a replacement. I'll try and get a replacement for the mind. We've got it for the duration. Something needs to be done. But with full understanding that it isn't something that we need to get, the first order of the day is to look after the mind, not to allow it anything, and to realize that our whole life depends on mind, every bit of it. It is the one that orders us around. And if it doesn't know how to give decent orders, obviously we're in strife. So our first investigation for insight. And I'm saying that so that you actually do that do this investigation is to find out 
How do I recognize that there is body and mind? And how do I recognize that the one is the servant and the other one is the boss? I can tell you these things for days on end and you might believe every word of it. It doesn't help anything. You have to find out for yourself. All I'm telling you are sort of the triggers so that you will look in the right direction. But if you don't find it out for yourself, you have forgotten it one day after the course ends. But if you find out for yourself, you'll never forget it. It's you. As long as I just say it and you haven't done it, it's mine. You're welcome to have it, but you've got to investigate yourself. It's all that the Buddha could do. It gives the guidelines, show you where to look. And when you look there, you will see those things that make the difference. That which changes the perspective. As long as our perspective is like a horse with blinkers on that can only look straight and not right nor left, we won't get out of Dukkha. In fact, we're going to add to it all the time. There's always something else to have Dukkha. But once we open up those blinkers and enlarge our perspective and see ourselves the way we really are, everything changes. It's like a bird's eye view. So check it out. Mind and body are two. Who is in charge? In walking meditation, who makes you walk? There's nothing else that can make you do anything except the mind. There's nothing else that can make you unhappy except the mind, your own. There's nothing that can make you happy except your own mind. Once we have seen that clearly, our spiritual work can start. Until we have seen that clearly, we think it's the world around us that's doing it. Somebody must be at fault. It isn't working. Or something. Or way back when. Or maybe in the future. But once we know it's our own mind, then we can start. Now we can start doing what? We can start doing exactly the same thing for the mind that we're doing for the body. The first thing is to clean it up. Nobody wants to run around 
with dirt spots on their body. So, why run around with negativities in the mind? It's far more unpleasant. And we're always of the opinion that it doesn't show. We think that the dirt spots on the body will show, but the dirt spots in the mind won't. Well, that too is a misconception. If someone walks into a room violently angry, that person doesn't have to say a word. Everybody knows it. And by the same token, if that person walks into a room happy, friendly, caring and loving, they don't have to say a word. Everybody knows it. I always say this because I find this very interesting. I have been told by a woman here in Australia who gives communication workshops, which in itself is also a sign of our times we've got to learn to communicate. And it has been statistically proven that words are 7% of our communication. The other 93% are body language, facial expression, tone of voice, the feeling that comes from the person. 93%. So how can we imagine that the dirt spots in the mind are invisible? They may be optically invisible, but that's all. And our optics aren't very good anyway. We can't look around corners, we can't see beyond the horizon, and we can't even see ultraviolet light. Bees can see that. So if we only trust our optics, we are so limited that we don't even allow ourselves the possibility that there's more to this world than what we can see with our eyes. So the first order of the day is Purification. Purification of the mind. For that, the Buddha gave a formula. And I'd like to tell you this formula and hope you will remember it and then, as you remember it, practice it. A spiritual path needs information, remembering, practicing, and evaluation. The evaluation at the end, where we check out, have I actually done it? Not to be confused with, do I actually know it? That confusion is rampant between knowing and doing particularly in our spiritual growth, but in all other areas of human life also. The difference between knowing and doing has to be assessed, and that's evaluation. So this formula for the purification of mind, it's called the four supreme efforts. They're called supreme because they're actually quite difficult, but also supremely 
beneficial. There are four of the 37 factors of enlightenment. So you can see how important they are. But the way to find out whether they are important or not is to do them. And then you need nobody to tell you that they are important. They go like this. Not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen. Not to let an unwholesome thought continue which has already arisen. To make a wholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen. To make a wholesome thought continue which has already arisen. That's where the labeling comes in and the substitution. That's what it's all about. Label and substitute. And to know what is wholesome and what is unwholesome is not very difficult. The unwholesome never has any feeling of happiness or peacefulness. The wholesome brings a feeling of contentment. It's quite simple <coughs> to notice. We can say negative and positive. We can say that which brings goodness or that which brings rejection and resistance. Any words you like, whichever ones please you, it doesn't matter, just doing it matters. If we wash our skin twice a day or even once a day, how much more important is it to wash the mind? It would be better if we had to choose between one and the other. It'd be better to have the dirty body and the clean mind. But we don't have to choose. We can do both. We're doing one anyway. We're washing the body. All we have to do is adding, washing the mind. Try it. If anything arises in the mind, now, later, tomorrow, which is negative and brings unhappiness, substitute with something else. Now there are different ways of doing that. One is taking the opposite, substituting with opposites, which is one way the Buddha recommended. It's not always possible. If one hates somebody, it's not possible for most people to immediately arouse love. Most people can't do that. But at least what we can do is we can look at that person a little more closely and remember anything good about them that ever they have done or said. If that doesn't help us, we can also remember that hating and disliking makes bad karma for ourselves. We can also remember that we're hurting ourselves. Because what we're doing is we are 
ingraining a habit of negativity which will continue if we don't stop it we can also remember that that negativity makes us unhappy all of these are possibilities but if nothing works as a last resort we just take our minds off this matter totally and think of something entirely different anything is better than negative unwholesome thinking the less of that we do the easier we can meditate obviously we're all here because we want to meditate we have to find the support systems for meditation we must never think that meditation functions all by itself just like one maybe can ride a bicycle we don't have to learn to ski in order to ride a bicycle but meditation doesn't work that way the whole person is involved every bit of it and if the whole person is on a totally different level of thinking and reacting meditation is a vain hope meditation has to be embedded in spiritual growth spiritual path spiritual practice it's one part of it it can never be taken out of that because it just doesn't happen so if we really want to have our meditation work and bring us the benefits that it can then we have to use our mind during the day in the appropriate manner and that means the negativity needs to be substituted now if we have things that we think badly about ourselves that's just as much a negativity as thinking badly about somebody else the human being what's the difference just because we call it me that's an illusion anyway if we think badly about ourselves that we haven't got the ability to meditate or we are very inferior to other people or uh, we can't cope or whatever it is that we're thinking about that too needs to be changed if we are having negative thoughts about this kind of practice that too needs to be changed if that continues there's no hope the whole person has to be involved with love and devotion to what we're doing if that doesn't happen meditation won't happen i guarantee but if love and devotion is there it does happen now what do we love and to what are we devoted to the highest ideals 
far beyond all those personal problems and small and petty concerns. The highest idea of total purity that we can be devoted to, whichever name you would like to give it. What's in a name? Anything at all you like to call it. It goes far beyond personal problems and petty concerns. There's nothing to do with personal comfort. It is an ideal beyond all that. Our devotion to that helps us to go beyond the momentary discomforts that everybody experiences. Always. Our days are made up of them, of comforts and discomforts. Only here we can notice it better because we don't have so much to distract us. And if we don't have love for the practice, wholehearted love, it can't work. Because if it isn't done wholeheartedly, it will have half or quarter-hearted results. It can't have whole results if the whole heart isn't involved. The whole heart has to be involved by knowing that one can give oneself to practicing. One can give oneself to doing one's very best, not expecting results, but giving oneself to it. Not trying to hold back that little bit of oneself which is thinking, well, maybe something else is better, or maybe if I feel a little more awake, or maybe tomorrow in the afternoon I feel better. These are all personal petty concerns. Wholehearted giving of oneself is the only hope one has for the meditation to flourish. There is no other. This wholehearted knowing that there is the highest idea and it is possible for any human being to attain it by letting go and letting go and letting go and loving the path that leads to it, the path of letting go. Loving that pathway because it is not trying to get anything, not trying to make oneself anything, but to find the fundamental reality which underlies all of this that we constantly see and hear. Now that kind of love and devotion has the opening of the heart and the opening of the heart will make it possible to let the mind stop rummaging around.
outside of the meditation, we need the purification of our thoughts. If we have a wholesome one, we keep it. If we don't have one, we try to arouse it. There's always something that's beautiful, uplifting, that is worth remembering. There's always something that we can put into the mind. If the mind continues to be negative, don't allow it. Every time you notice it, give it the opportunity to change. If you can't change it, take it away from that object of negativity and put it on something entirely different. Like if the mind is worried about a particular personal problem and it just can't seem to get away from it, look at the beauty of raindrops on a green leaf. It's as simple as that. And if you do it often enough, eventually the mind gives in. It's habit prone. If it keeps on niggling away at that which is problematic and negative, of course it stays with that. If you take it away over and over again, it will stay with that where you take it to. Naturally, substitution is an important aspect, but as I said, it doesn't always work. So there's this other possibility of changing it completely. There are many things that we can think about those matters which we consider negative. One of the very important thoughts is this is a very important learning situation for me. What can I learn? Not looking at it and saying, oh, this is dreadful, this is terrible, I can't stand it, I've got to get away from it. What do I, what can I learn from this? That's a very helpful and positive way of thinking. So that's the purification of mind. The exercise which we are giving the mind is to make it stand still. It takes time for the mind to learn that. Like all skills, it isn't learned overnight. Some people can do it quickly. Others take a long time. It doesn't matter. It's not the result that counts. It's the effort. But effort must not be confused with the achievement syndrome, which is so rampant, particularly in the West, because that's what is considered to be important to achieve something. Effort is right, determination is right, but expectation and achievement are nothing but anxiety breeding. Because if we expect something, we can be sure to be disappointed. We can see that if we want to meditate, and we have the mind full of expectation, how can we meditate? 
can do only one thing at a time. But if we have a determination and then let that go and actually meditate, it helps. It's like an anchor post that the mind has fashioned for itself. The other thing I said that we do for the body is give it a good rest. Now about that I will talk at another time because that is the ability to have calm and tranquility through the meditation. And I will explain that at length. But here I would like to emphasize that in this chain of cause and effect which the Buddha gave us as dependent arising, the rebirth consciousness fashions mind and body. And the picture that is used for mind and body is usually a boat with a boatman who is paddling and a passenger who is lying prone at the bottom of the boat. The passenger is the body. The boatman is the mind. When you meditate next time, see who is meditating. Obviously the mind reacts to the body. But who is meditating, mind or body? And then you will see who's got priority. That doesn't mean that one should disregard the body. It needs attention. Any good employee needs attention. But not to the exclusion of the attention on the one who's in charge. You need to really experience it in yourself in order to make it stick because if you don't experience it in yourself as I said you'll forget it not even maybe a day after the course maybe even already tomorrow that's what one here does not have the impact as the, the things that we experience we compare that to biting into the mango. If you want to know what a mango tastes like and you ask somebody to tell you, they'll be delighted to tell you that it's sweet, delicious, soft and juicy. You're going to like mangoes because of that? Or will you have to bite into it to find out what it's like? And then Nobody can tell you anymore that it tastes like a peach. You know what a mango tastes like. That's why everything that I tell you needs personal experience and investigation. And you can do that easily here. There's nothing else to do. That's why it's organized like that. Nothing else to do except investigate these things. So in this chain of dependent arising, we don't need to look at future life or past life. All we can look at is tomorrow morning. When you wake up, 
the consciousness is there and there is mind and body and obviously they are called me and mine and look at them and then see what you need to do about the one who is in charge please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments your heart with forgiveness forgiving yourself for anything that you think you may have done badly or wrongly forgive yourself for any omissions or commissions accept yourself just the way you are this moment and forgive everything of the past it's all gone and this person today is not the one from yesterday forgiving and forgetting accepting and loving let your heart speak like that to you Now think of your parents, whether they are still alive or not, and forgive them for anything that you think they may have done wrong or badly. Forgiving, forgetting, accepting and loving. Let your heart. Speak to them like that. 